Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for everything that you're doing in this church, God. And it's so powerful when, um, when, when we choose to be obedient as best as we can, uh, what you do, how you move. And I thank you so much for yesterday and all the conversations that took place. Lord, I pray that you would continue to do a mighty work here. Lord, and we, st- we know it starts with uh, a relationship with you. Um, and that relationship, so much of it comes by, by seeking you in the word. Uh, so God, I pray that you would speak to us through your word, that it wouldn't just be my words, Lord, but, but you would move in power. Uh, teach all of us by your spirit. We want to learn from you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Uh, we'll be in Matthew chapter 22, uh, from 23 to 46. We'll close out the chapter today, but just to uh, catch you up to speed, remember Jesus, he had this kind of verbal battle with the religious leaders, and they had questioned his authority, and he used three parables to communicate to them that they've ultimately rejected God's authority. They've rejected his messengers, they've rejected his message, uh, and ultimately they've rejected their place in the kingdom. Then last week, we see the Pharisees come back again, plotting against Jesus to try to get him to stumble in his words. And we know that's never going to happen, and it doesn't. And they ask him a question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus comes up with this amazingly creative answer, and he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. Yes, you're under Caesar uh, 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 materially. He's the authority placed in your life. So give him the taxes he's asking for. But ultimately, you're under God's authority. So give him everything else. Give him your whole life. Now, we're going to see Jesus. He's going to first have a conversation with a group of Sadducees. Then he's later going to have a conversation with a group of Pharisees. Same day, same time, setting that whole deal. But we're going to see Jesus in this conversation... He's going to address some false beliefs that both the Sadducees and the Pharisees have concerning the scriptures. See, both the Sadducees and Pharisees, they had different beliefs, but they formed their beliefs based on their logic, based on their experiences, and based on their personal interpretations of the scripture. And what Jesus is going to do, he's trying to get them back to the truth of God's word. Why? Because the word of God frames the world around us. This is the title of the teaching. The word frames our world. The word frames our world. Now, this, uh, first of all, it means this, Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13. Verse 3, it says this, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen... We're not made of things which are visible. God literally framed the entire world with his words. But I'm not just talking about the creation story and how God spoke, spoke creation into existence. I'm speaking personally. What we believe about the word of God shapes the way we view the world around us. We can live, choose to to live in the truth and accept the truth of the scriptures, or we can choose to live in the lies that the world throws at us. See, Jesus, that's his intention in this text. He's going to address the false beliefs of these religious leaders, not just to tell them that they're wrong, but he wants to lead them to the truth that 
sets them free. They're bound to a life of lies. And because he loves them, he wants to give them the truth so they don't live this life of lies anymore. If you would with me, Matthew chapter 22. This is what we're going to do. We're going to read first verses 23 to 33. So you get uh, that first little uh, section, what's happening. Okay. Verse 23, the same day, the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to him and asked him saying, teacher, Moses said that if a man dies, having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were with Uh, Seven brothers, the first died after he had married and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also and the third even to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels of God in heaven. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God saying, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Okay, so this first conversation we're going to look at is between Jesus and these Sadducees. If you look back at Matthew chapter 22, verse 23, says the same day, the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to him and asked him. So the Sadducees were the wealthy governing upper upper class of the society in that day. And they didn't believe in the supernatural, okay? They didn't believe in the resurrection. We'll talk about that. They didn't believe in angels. Uh, They only believed what was written in the Torah, okay? The first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They didn't believe in the Psalms. They didn't believe in the prophets. They didn't believe in the historical books. They didn't believe all of those were inspired by God. And we'll see Jesus meet them where they're at and what they believe uh, in a second. But before we do, I want to emphasize one thing. It says the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in life after this, life after death. Point number one, no resurrection means no hope. No resurrection means no hope. What we believe about the resurrection literally affects our hope. And Paul, he makes a very strong argument about the resurrection. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we'll read a portion of it. He says this, verse 16, 1 Corinthians 15, 16. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. What Paul is saying is is our faith isn't just dependent on the death of Jesus Christ. It's dependent on the resurrection. If Jesus died and didn't rise, we have no hope. We have no hope for an afterlife. If the Lord didn't resurrect, then we won't either. 
So he makes this argument, and it's a very powerful argument uh, concerning the resurrection. Uh, and if you have questions about the resurrection, uh, I'd encourage you to not just study it, but we did a message on this uh, about Easter and the historical, logical uh, significance and, and evidence for the resurrection is so compelling, it doesn't take much faith to believe. So if you're there and struggling with that, I'd encourage you to read that. We're not going to get into that today for time's sake, but the point is, Paul says, if there is no resurrection, our faith is futile. It's absolutely meaningless. It means nothing. If we don't have hope in the resurrection, there is no hope for us. There's a story uh, back after World War II. Uh, Billy Graham had this conversation with the German chancellor, okay? The German chancellor, he saw the Holocaust, okay? He saw everything that played out in World War II, and he asked Billy Graham, he said, hey, uh, Billy, do, do you believe in the resurrection? Billy Graham's like thrown off, like, yeah, of course I believe in the resurrection. And then this is what this chancellor, Chancellor Conrad, this is what he said. Outside of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I know of no other hope for mankind. There is no other hope for mankind outside of the resurrection for G of Jesus Christ. Because he rose, we'll rise too. And that's what Paul later says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. He says, but Christ did rise from the dead. So we got nothing to worry about. He really did rise because he rose from the dead. We have hope in an afterlife. Now, the belief in the resurrection significantly affects the way we live, not just eternally in our destination. It affects the way we live here and now. If I don't believe in an afterlife and I don't believe that there is a resurrection, both to heaven and to hell for those that don't accept the Lord, I'm just going to die anyway, so why not just while out? Live however I want to live. I'm just going to have fun. I'm going to live in the moment. There's no effort for investing into an eternal inheritance. There's no point in doing anything that's going to affect us in the future. It only affects us presently. Without the hope for the resurrection or the hope of an afterlife, we have no eternal accountability for sin. I could do whatever I want. It's, it's really, it, it'll affect me here, but it's not going to affect me there. Not believing in the resurrection truly affects the way we live in this world. And it was no different for the Sadducees. Look what happens. Matthew chapter 22, verse 24. This is what they ask Jesus. They say, teacher, Moses said that if a man dies, having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. This was true, um, but they ask this hypothetical, ridiculous question. Okay, and we, we'll get into it in a second. But what they're getting at is something that Moses said back in Deuteronomy chapter 25. Uh, and, and basically what would happen is if you had a brother and, and that brother was married to a woman and you weren't married, and your brother died, you had an obligation to marry his wife. Now we look at that and go, dude, that's weird. Like, I wouldn't want to marry my brother's wife. That's weird, but you got to look at culture. Back then, it wasn't like how it is today. A woman, they didn't have like jobs where they could provide for themselves. If they didn't have a husband, they were obviously widows and the religious leaders would take advantage of them. Uh, amongst other people, they would truly be in a horrible situation if they didn't have that man in their life. Culturally, they weren't taking care of themselves in that way. Very different than today. But also... 
the Lord instituted this not just to protect the woman, uh, but also to protect the lineage of the man who died. Okay, so this is how it would work if I had a brother and I wasn't married and and he married a, 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 a woman that he died and I married her and we had a child, that child would really carry out my brother's name. Okay, he would he would be his son. You wouldn't really even though physically he was my son, spiritually he would be my brother's son. Why? So that name could continue to carry on. So the name wouldn't die and lineage and genealogy was very important to the Lord and um, uh, the the keeping that uh, uh, the historical records of all of that. It was it was something that they were very focused on. So this is what the Sadducees are bringing to Jesus. They start here with the truth of scripture, but then they get away from the truth with their interpretation. Look what happens in verse 25. Now there were with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married and having no offspring left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also and the third, even to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. Now, first of all, I don't know what's wrong with this woman. Everyone that's marrying her is dying, okay? This family, I don't know. Okay, but obviously, uh, this, this isn't like a true story, okay? This probably never happened. Not that it couldn't have happened. But they're coming up with this logical argument in their mind to disprove the resurrection. Basically, it goes like this, okay? If there's seven guys married to one woman in heaven... How does that work? How does a woman have seven husbands in heaven? Like, how does that work? And and if a, a woman had seven husbands in heaven, like those brothers, there'd be some jealousy, right? There'd be some family feuds. There'd be some conflict. So there can't be jealousy in heaven and you can't have multiple spouses in heaven. So the resurrection must, must not be true. That's their logic and how they're thinking. Just because it doesn't make sense doesn't mean it isn't true. Just because they can't wrap their minds around it doesn't mean it's not true. How many people in here have a complete, full understanding of nuclear physics? Tell me, nobody? No one? A complete understanding of nuclear physics. So you don't understand it, therefore it must not be true. No, like that's foolish logic. Just because we can't completely conceive, understand something, doesn't mean that it's not true. Truth often transcends our understanding. It's bigger than our brains can even grasp. Jesus continues on. He's going to respond to them in this next verse. Matthew chapter 22, verse 29. Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. He says you're mistaken. Why? They were mistaken in their assumption because they were mistaken in their beliefs. When we have faulty beliefs, we're going to make faulty assumptions. You ever falsely accuse someone? Like assume something about them that wasn't true, right? The things that we believe affect the way we assume things. He says, you are mistaken. Look at what he says. Not knowing the scriptures. They knew about the scriptures. They were supposed to know them thoroughly, uh, but they didn't know them in the way that they should have because if they knew them, they would see evidence of the resurrection all over the scriptures. This isn't just, the resurrection isn't just a New Testament thing. This is something that God's planned since the beginning of time. But they're leaning on their own logic and they're 
own logic is leading them away from the truth. Sometimes when we lean on our own logic, our own understanding, it actually gets us further away from the truth than what the actual truth is. He says, you don't know the scriptures nor the power of God. He says, your logic is minimizing God's power. Just because you can't understand God's power doesn't mean that it's not real and he can't do these things. Isaiah chapter 55. In Isaiah chapter 55. God says in verse 8, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's like, dude, you can't understand, like, the, the power, the, the knowledge, everything that God, we cannot completely wrap our minds around God, but we have the scripture to give us a firm, confident understanding of who God is. We only know in part. See, the Sadducees think, if I can't wrap my mind around this, it must not be true. But just because you can't conceive the idea, the concept of the resurrection, it doesn't mean it isn't true. And people, they use this argument all the time. I don't believe in the resurrection because I don't understand how people could rise from the dead. I don't believe in a resurrection because I've never seen something like that before. Like, I've never seen anyone rise from That must not be true and what they're doing is lean on their own logic and own experiences and it's actually leading them further and further away from the truth because there's a lot of things we don't understand how the universe works the most famous scientists in the world that's why they have to come up with so many theories why because they don't completely understand how it all works if we can't understand how the universe works how can we possibly completely conceive understand the power of god it says you don't know the scriptures you don't know the power of god if you knew the power of god then you would realize that he is able to raise the dead if you knew the scriptures you would realize he will raise the dead because he said he's going to so he points them back to the truth Look what he says in Matthew chapter 22, verse 30. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. So in heaven, apparently, we won't be married uh, in the same sense that we are now. We're not going to be distracted by um, past wives, present wives, uh, future husbands, whatever it is. We're not going to be distracted with these relationships that we had. Why? Because we're going to have a perfect groom. We're all going to be married to Jesus Christ. The Bible says in Ephesians 5 that the church is the bride of Christ. Male or female, the Lord is our groom. This doesn't mean, though, however... That we won't recognize our wives and husbands and our family members. Uh, we see in Luke chapter 16, verse 27, if you want to write it down, um, there's a, a, a rich man and this guy named Lazarus. And Lazarus, he goes to this place called Abraham's bosom, the holding place for the saints, if you will. Uh, and then he goes to, to Sheol, okay? Uh, the rich man goes to Sheol and the rich man is, is crying out and he recognizes his family members that are going to go to hell. 
while he's there in Sheol. So he had a recognition that of who his family members were. Okay, that amongst other scriptures lead us to the place that, hey, we're likely going to recognize our family members. We'll likely recognize our wife. We'll likely recognize our husband. It just won't be the same type of relationship. In fact, personally, I believe it's going to be even a closer relationship than it was here on earth. Why? Now we know in part, but then we shall know just as we also are known. We're going to know them better than we ever had. The point is, though, we're going to be focused on Jesus. Now, you have to remember why Jesus is bringing them to this scripture. The men, they were questioning They were questioning the resurrection because the seven men married to the one wife. And how can there be jealousy in heaven? Well, there's not going to be the potential for jealousy in heaven. And he's trying to bring clarity of what that marriage dynamic is. And he says this, this is the example that he uses. <clears throat> for in the resurrection, they will never neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels of God in heaven. Now, the Lord's main intention in mis- uh, mentioning the angels is because the Sadducees don't believe in the angels. So he's dismissing their false belief. That's why the main purpose and why he's mentioning the angels. They don't believe in the supernatural. He's affirming, no, there are, the resurrection is true and there are actually angels. Now it appears looking at this scripture that angels can't reproduce in heaven. It appears they can't reproduce. Uh, It it appears that there's no reproduction in heaven uh, other than God creating things. We see no evidence of of reproduction in heaven other than creation and what God creates. But this doesn't necessarily, now hear my words carefully, this doesn't necessarily mean that angels can't reproduce on earth. Now, there's a couple scriptures that come up time and time again, and many people teach this, okay? I'm going to tell you what it is. I'm not going to say that I firmly believe this, okay? It's just not certain in the scriptures. Now, you see in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 to 7, you see these sons of God intermarrying with the daughters of man, okay? Now, many believe that those sons of God are fallen angels and they interbreeded with these daughters of men. And it says through that interaction came forth the giants of the earth. Later on, Goliath and all that. The giants came from that, the Nephilim they're referred to. And if you look at Jude verses six and seven, if you want to write this down, I'd encourage you to study it and look into it on your own. In Jude verses six and seven, Jude makes this statement. He talks about these angels that left their heavenly abode. They left their domain and he likens to what they did when they left to what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah and the sexual immorality. So many people take Genesis 6 verse 1 to 7 and Jude 6 and 7 and they say, hey, these are demonic angels, uh, fallen angels that interbreeded, had sex with with the, the daughters of man. Okay, I'll tell you this. We can't say that as a matter of fact. Okay, I'm, I'm not saying that that isn't true. Uh, I'm also not saying that it absolutely is true. The things that the Lord isn't clear about, I choose not to be clear about. Okay, so there's, there's, there's some uh, uh, options, o- open opportunity for some interpretation there. I just want you to know the general and what many people believe. The point of this is that... 
What happens in Genesis chapter 6 and in Jude 6 and 7 doesn't necessarily contradict what Jesus is saying here. He says, are like the angels of God in heaven. He's specifically speaking about heaven. Okay? Something that I would encourage you to, to study on your own. This also brings up the topic of what gender are the angels? Okay? Are they male? Are they female? Now, that's something we can't be certain about either. Every time in the scripture, when they're referred to as a gender, they're referred to as male. Okay, They're never once referred to as female. But are they males like we are males, like have all the parts of males and all that? Scripture doesn't tell us. We can't be certain about these things. These things. Uh, the point is uh, that there's many things in the scripture that we get pieces of, but we don't have the whole piece. And this is one of those scriptures. But the Lord, his main point isn't talking about the reproduction or lack of reproduction. Again, the main point is that the Sadducees don't believe in angels. And he's trying to affirm angels are true. The second thing he's trying to get across is this marriage dynamic dynamic in heaven. What do angels do in heaven? They serve the Lord and they worship the Lord day and night. See, we're going to be like that. We're not going to be distracted by other relationships. Doesn't mean we won't have other relationships. We will be completely focused on Jesus Christ with nothing else. We're going to be serving him. We're going to be uh, worshiping him. We're going to be completely devoted to the Lord. Matthew chapter 23, verse 31 But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? So bringing back up the resurrection of the dead, Jesus points them back to the word. Have you not read what was spoken by God? See, they form their beliefs based on their interpretations and their faulty logic and all these things. And Jesus, he's trying to point them back to the truth so that the truth of God's word is the very thing that shapes their beliefs. Point number two. The word of God shapes, should shape our beliefs. The word of God should shape our beliefs. Our own reasoning, our own logic, our own experiences shouldn't be the very thing that shapes our belief. I'm not saying don't use them. I'm not saying completely discredit those things. But when our logic doesn't line up with God's word, something's wrong. And I'll tell you, it's not God's word. He's pointing them back to the scripture to shape their beliefs. Does the word of God shape your beliefs? Do you believe things that are contrary to the word of God? I think if we're honest, we can all admit there's probably lies that we believe. Whether it's about ourselves, whether it's about someone else, or whether it's about the word of God. Jesus points them back to the word because he wants the word of God to shape their beliefs. The word of God should shape our beliefs beliefs how many times have you been proven wrong in your life how many times has your logic and reasoning been proven wrong right many times how many times has the bible been proven wrong it hasn't no one has firmly ever proved the bible wrong it just doesn't happen and he says this is why look have you not read what was spoken to you by god He's saying the Bible, what you have was spoken to you by God. The word of God was spoken by God. It was inspired by God. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16, it says all scripture was given under inspiration of God. Uh, In another translation in the Greek, it says all scripture is God breathed. 
Like God breathed these words into these men to write these scriptures. Now, God didn't himself put use his hand like he did the uh, the Ten Commandments, use his finger and, and write the words. No, he inspired these men. Now, when you look at the 66 books in the Bible, the 40 plus authors that wrote it, they don't contradict each other. The word of God is something we can trust because it was spoken by God. Now, men were the ones that that wrote these scriptures down, inspired by God, but it wasn't man's words. It was God's words. And Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual He's saying, the things I've been delivering to you, they weren't my words. It wasn't my wisdom. The Spirit of God literally was governing these words. Now, when we look at the inspiration that these authors had to write Scripture, it's not like the typical inspiration that we think of. It's not like a poet who was emotionally inspired to write a script. Man, I was really moved by this thing. Or a painter, I saw this thing. I was moved by it. That's not what it is. When they're talking about inspiration, it means the words that were written down were completely governed by God. They didn't write anything down that wasn't governed by God. I highly encourage you, if you have questions about the scripture, to study these things. When I first came to faith, there was a bunch of stuff I didn't believe in, I didn't agree with. I had all these questions, and I didn't believe the Bible in its entirety. I'll tell you, over the years, as I've sought diligently to understand with an open mind, wanting to know the truth, I firmly believe the Bible in its entirety. In fact, I stake my life and soul on it. The more we study this, the more we realize it's true. And I'm not just talking about looking at the scriptures, but the historical uh, records that support the scriptures and some of these events that happen, the word of God is inspired. It's inerrant. Now, when you look at the inerrancy of scripture, Uh, What we have is a, I don't know what yours is, New King James, maybe, English Bible. The Bible wasn't written in English, okay? The Bible was written in Hebrew. It was written in Greek, all right? So we have translations of the Bible, but we can be so confident in these translations. Now, this is true. There's, if you look at certain things, and you can study this on this on your own, um, there may be a number, like a, 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 a when a, a king came to power, that's slightly different in First Kings and First Chronicles, okay? Because there was, was the opportunity for scribal errors through those translations over the years. When we talk about the inerrancy of Scripture, we're talking about two things. There's no error in the message, the specific message and messages of the Bible that we have today. It's the same exact message that was given uh, uh, over the 1,500 years that it was written. And when we also look at inerrancy, we're talking about the original manuscripts that were written down. If you're curious more about this, um, I've studied this a lot in the past, but there's a really good book that I'm reading called Peculiar Glory by John Piper. And man, it's it's powerful and it's like... This is so obvious when you look at the logical, historical, archaeological evidence for the truth and power of God's word. 
It doesn't take much faith to believe. He says this was spoken by God. He wants the word of God to frame, to shape what they believe. They were leaning on their own understanding. Matthew chapter 22, verse 32. He says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. God says, I am. I always have been. I I always am. I always will be. I'm an eternal God, and those that follow me get to share in this eternity that I've prepared for them. He's not a God of the dead, but a God of the living. It doesn't say, he's pointing them back to the Torah, let me, uh, let me uh, point that out. Remember, they only believe the first five books of the Bible, so he uses what they already believe to bring them to truth. He could have used a bunch of other scriptures from the prophets and the Psalms and all these things, but no, he meets them where they're at. I'm going to take what you already believe and prove to you that the resurrection always has been true. I am the God of the living. Not I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when they were alive. I am the God of the living because they still live with me. They're in my presence. I am still their God. Matthew chapter 22, verse 33. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. See, it's not just the Sadducees here, but there are multitudes here too. This message isn't just for the Sadducees, it's for the multitudes. He's trying to impart truth to the Sadducees to correct their false beliefs, but he's trying to impart hope to the multitudes that they would know. There's there's a hope after this. There's life after this life if we trust the Lord. Well, either way, there's going to be life, whether it's 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 condemnation or or whether it's life with the lord so he's trying to spread hope even to these multitudes that are listening in matthew chapter 22 um we'll read verses 34 to 40 so you get the big picture then we'll break it down but when the pharisees heard that he had silenced the sadducees they gathered together then one of them a lawyer asked him a question testing him and saying teacher which is the greatest commandment in the law Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second like it is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So, verse 34, we see the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees. So now they're trying to take advantage of the situation. They're supposed to be the experts in the word of God. They're once again, just as they did earlier this day, trying to get Jesus to stumble in his word. So they send him one of the big guns. They send him a lawyer in verse 35. Now, a lawyer in that time in the Bible, uh, it's not a lawyer like we think of today. Okay, A lawyer in that time, it means an expert in the Levitical law. Okay, That's what it means. It's more like a scholar. Okay, than, than a lawyer like we think today. They're an expert. Uh, they're super f- proficient in understanding the truth of Scripture. At least they're supposed to be. So this lawyer comes to him, asks him a question, verse 36. He's testing him. Okay, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? He's testing him because he wants Jesus to say that one portion of the law, one portion of the word of God uh, is exalted greater than the other portion. And what he really wants him to do is discredit a portion of the law so he can say, see, you don't really believe in God's word. So you must not be a legit prophet, certainly not the Messiah. Okay, but Jesus, once again, he comes up with this amazingly intelligent, creative answer in Matthew chapter 22. Verse 37. Now, this is a quote from Deuteronomy, actually, so it's something they should have already known. 
Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second like it is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Point number three, the word is summed up in love. The word is summed up in love. Jesus summarizes all 39 books of the Old Testament. They separated it differently back then. But he summarizes the entire Old Testament, even the New Testament, in this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, when you look at these words, heart, soul, and mind, um, especially heart and soul, uh, often in, in the Bible, they're interchangeable, okay? They're very similar in meaning, okay? When you look at hearts, uh, the Greek word is cardia, and ultimately, it's the center for physical, emotional, intellectual, and moral activities, the, the whole of the innermost part of man. In fact, in that culture... In both Old Testament and New Testament, uh, they believed that the heart was more like the brain. Uh, like the heart was the thing that made everything function. Your emotions, your thoughts, it was the thing. Yeah, it was more like what we call the brain now that science has showed us these things. Uh, when you look at soul, that's that Greek word psyche, where we get psychology from. Uh, and it's and it really means life in simple words. But it's the essence of the human nature, often connected to emotions amongst other things. And then when you look at the mind, not necessarily the thinking portion, they connect that typically back to the heart, uh, it's the conscience, okay? Having a clear conscience with God. But what Jesus is saying here, he's not really separating these things like I just said. He's not saying like, make sure you got the heart in, make sure you got the soul in, make sure you got the mind in. What he's saying is love the Lord your God with every ounce of your being, every facet of your being, the way you think, the way you talk, what you let come into your ears, what you let come into your eyes, how you live, the interactions that you have, every single thing you do, do it as unto the Lord. And that's the message that he's trying to get across to them. Love God with every part of us. And then the second commandment like it, he says, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, well, that brings the, the question, who's your neighbor? Is it the person that lives to the right of me? The person that lives in the next to me? So you're like, man, I got a hard time loving my neighbor, right? Oh my gosh, my neighbor, you don't even know. <laughs> but when he says neighbor, he's not just talking about the people that live next to us, uh, nor is he just talking about the people that live in our neighborhood. Uh, in Luke chapter 10, uh, you know the story of the good Samaritan, all right? Samaritans were enemies of God. Jesus gives this story to communicate amongst other things that our neighbor is the one to whom we're neighborly to. Meaning our neighbor is anyone and everyone we encounter. It doesn't matter if it's here in, in Running Springs, California, in Europe. You have an encounter with someone, that's your neighbor. Okay, anyone you interact with. You might not be the same culture, the same mindset, the same worldview. Your neighbor is anyone and everyone that you have an encounter with. And he says, love your neighbor as yourself. This doesn't mean that I need to love myself before I love my neighbor. What Jesus is getting at is this. Now, love, we know in the Bible, it's not just an emotional thing. It's an action word. Love does something. That's what he's talking about. Love in an action word. When you think about how much you take care of yourself, right? When you think about how much you think about yourself. I'm on my mind all day long. 
I'm always thinking about myself, right? What am I going to eat? What am I going to do? What am I going to wear? What am I going to say? Like all these things we think about ourselves all the time. And we do things in our life to what? Take care of ourselves. We, we might not always love ourselves in the like, uh, uh, the emotional thing, but, but the external thing, the action thing, we take care of ourselves. At least most of us do. And that's what he's saying. Take care of other people like you take care of yourself. Think about other people like you think about yourself. Think about other people more than you think about yourself. My love for my neighbor isn't dependent on my love for myself. It's dependent on my love for God. Okay. First uh, John chapter four tells us this. First John chapter four, John explains this. And this is one of those heart piercers. Okay. First John chapter four, verse 20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? See, we have an obligation, an act of obedience to, to, to love our neighbor, to love our brothers and sisters, to love anyone we encounter. Now, that doesn't mean that we always feel like loving them. It's the act of loving them. We can't say we love God and not love our neighbor, not love our brother, not love our sister. So our love for our neighbor is not dependent on our love for ourselves. It's dependent on our love for God. Matthew chapter 22, verse 40. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. All 613 Levitical laws. All 613. The Ten Commandments, which they all fit in. All these laws are really summed up and fulfilled with love. When you look at the four commandments, okay? If you're loving God, you're fulfilling the four commandments. I'll read them to you. If you're loving God, you'll have no other gods before him. You won't worship idols. You won't take his name in vain. You'll remember the Sabbath by purposing to to seek him and find rest in him. Seeking that relationship with him. Those are the first four commandments. The six, the final six, if you love your neighbor as yourself, then you're fulfilling these last six. You're going to honor your father and mother. You won't murder your neighbor if you love them, right? You certainly won't commit adultery if you love your neighbor, won't steal, won't lie, won't covet. You're not going to do these things if you're loving your neighbor. Jesus said, it's simple. Just, just focus on these things. Love God, love your neighbor. You'll fulfill all these things if you choose to do those. Matthew chapter 22, verse 41. We'll read to verse 46. This is our last section. While the Pharisees were gathered together, they asked him, they asked them, Jesus asked them, sorry, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how then does David in the spirit called him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. Okay, so now they, the, the Pharisees just asked Jesus a question. So now Jesus is going to flip it the other way and he's going to ask them a question. He's taking advantage of the opportunity. You got a question for me? I answered your question. Now you're going to answer my question. But what he's asking him, look at the question. What do you think about the Christ? This is the heart of what he's trying to get at. Why? Because they had false beliefs about the Messiah. They were expecting something different than Jesus Christ. Someone different. They confused scriptures and they didn't have the right idea in mind. And he wants them to know the truth. 
Because what they believe about him, what they believe about the Christ is significantly going to affect their lives, both in the present and in the eternal. Point number four, what we believe about Christ affects our lives. What we believe about Christ affects our lives. Remember, the Sadducees had a false belief, right? They didn't believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in the resurrection, the angels. Uh, Jesus dismisses those beliefs, gives them truth. Now he's trying to communicate truth to the Pharisees. Though they believed in the supernatural, they didn't completely understand their beliefs about Jesus Christ, about who the Christ was going to be, were faulty. So he tries to address those beliefs so that they know his true identity. They're expecting something different. So he asks them, who do you, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. Now, this was true. Uh, the promise initially came to Abraham, the promise, uh, the promised seed from Abraham to Isaac, to Isaac, to Jacob, from Jacob to Judah. Okay, in Genesis chapter 49. Uh, and then there it says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Uh, this was a, also a reference to the Messiah. Now we see through the lineage of Judah comes a man named Jesse, and Jesse has a son named David. Okay, so there's plenty of scriptures that point to the fact that G, the Messiah would come through the lineage of David. So this is, this is true. It says this many times, for time's sake we won't look at all the things. But they're expecting just someone to come through the lineage of David, the son of David. But we... He's going to try to get across to them this truth that he's not just the son of David, he's the son of God. They don't completely understand who the Messiah was going to be. Matthew chapter 22, verse 43. He said to them, How then does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? So David, inspired by the Spirit, he writes this psalm. It's Psalm chapter uh, 110, okay, first verse. Uh, he's pointing them back to Scripture once again, a Scripture that they firmly believed in. And he says, why does David, if it's David's son, why would David call the Messiah Lord? He's more than just the son of David. Now, when you look at these words, Lord, in verse 44, the Lord said to my Lord, that first one is Yahweh, that's the word for Yahweh said to my Lord. That second word is uh, in the Hebrew is Adonai. So this is literally what it's saying. The God said to my God, okay, Yahweh said to Adonai, wait a minute. God was talking to him. Wait, God said to God, but it's two different names for God. So was God talking to himself or was he talking to another person that was God? He's talking to another person that was God. And that's what they're trying to, that's what Jesus is trying to get at. He's, I'm not just the son of David. I'm God in the flesh. It was awesome. Yesterday I had a long conversation with a Jehovah's Witness and this was fresh in my mind. And it was one of uh, many scriptures that I brought to her. And she's like, oh, that's interesting. I never saw that before. God said to my God, why would God say something to himself and use two different names? Because he's talking to another person that's God. That's why we worship a, a triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they're all God. Singular, but also plural, different persons. That'll be for another study sometime in the future. So he says, Matthew chapter 22, verse 46, And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. 
So they had nothing left to say. It would have been uh, probably more beneficial if this would have happened sooner. See, Jesus is going to die in a few days. It's at this point, a few days before his death, that they decide we're not going to get in arguments with him anymore. Any more theological debates. He always makes us look foolish. But, sorry to say, it took this long for them to get it. Some are more hard-headed than others. We see that truth with the Pharisees here. So they have no way to answer him. No one was able to answer him a word. When Jesus hits us with the truth, what do we got to say? We got nothing. When Jesus smacks us with the truth about ourselves, about some lie that we may believe about the word, about another individual, when he smacks us with that truth, we have no words to say. There's no like arguing our way out of it. We have one of two options. We can either accept the word that he's given us or we can reject it. That's the fifth point. Accept the word or reject the word. Accept the word or reject the word. They were left with the word of God once again as he so often does. But sadly, many of them didn't accept it. Many of them, we'll see, are going to reject the word of God. But I'm not just talking about these words that Jesus spoke. I'm talking about the word of God in its entirety, all 66 books. Either way, whether we reject the word of God or accept the word of God, what we believe about the word of God will shape the way that we view this world. Every single person on the face of the earth has to take a stance with the word of God one day or another. Choosing not to take a stance is choosing to take a stance. Me saying, eh, I don't know about that. That's choosing to take a stance. We stand on the truth and stability of God's word, or we stand on the unstable, unstable lies of this world that are always changing, ever changing. The truth that the world throws at us is no truth at all. And we can stand on those lies. We can stand on God's word. It really comes down to this. Do you want to believe the truth that sets us free? Because that's what Jesus said. I, I, I want you to know the truth. The truth that sets you free. Do we want to know the truth? Do we want to accept the truth that sets us free? Or do we want to be bound to a life of lies and believe things that aren't true? Either way, again, what we believe about the word of God will shape the way we see this world whether we accept it or we reject it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your patience and long-suffering with the religious leaders, God, and uh, the things that they believe that, that weren't true. You took the time to correct them, Lord. And, and, and I believe that many of us, probably all of us, have things that we believe that aren't true. God, whether it's about ourselves, whether it's about another individual, or, or whether it's about your word and our lives on this, uh, our lives on this earth, God. So I pray that you would give us humble hearts to receive your truth, Lord. If you want to correct something in our lives, that we would accept it, that we wouldn't allow pride to be a barrier to prevent us from accepting the truth that sets us free, but we would really look to you and, and look inside our hearts and say, Hey. Uh, is there something that I believe that's not true, God? And you would give us that truth and the opportunity to accept it so that we can be free. Lord, we pray that you would deliver any of us from the bondage of a life of lies. In Jesus' name, amen.